a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olicker, speaking to you this time around from surprisingly warm Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, speaking to you from a not surprisingly cold and grey Brussels. Today, we're talking about what's behind recent protests in Georgia and what's ahead for that country. At the beginning of March, Georgians took to the streets of Tbilisi to protest a bill that sought to class non-governmental and media groups receiving more than 20% of their funding from abroad as foreign agents. The law was strikingly similar to a Russian law. It has been implemented in Russia, it has been implemented in Belarus, and we don't want to be part of uh, ex-Soviet Union. We want to be part of European Union, we want to be pro-West. Just 85% of Georgians are pro-Western, and uh, more Georgians are uh, gathering to once again state, we are Georgians and therefore we are European. Although it also shared attributes with, for example, US anti-lobbying legislation, the alignment with Russia's law, which the Kremlin had used to crack down on NGOs and independent journalists, led many to accuse the ruling Georgian Dream Party of deliberately turning its back on the West and derailing prospects for EU accession. EU officials had actually condemned the draft legislation as being incompatible with EU values. After having used riot police to disperse protesters for two days in a row, authorities dropped the controversial bill, but anger against Georgian Dream still lingers, as do fears that the party and its leaders see the country's future with Moscow, not Brussels. Of course, Georgia's relationship with its big neighbour has long been complicated. Russian tanks ran through our towns, you know, villages. The world is witnessing and blunt an open violation on universally recognized principles of international law. Following a five-day conflict between the two countries in 2008, Russia recognized two breakaway regions of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which Tbilisi has not controlled since wars in the 1990s and upped its force presence in those territories. To Georgia, this is tantamount to an occupation of close to one-fifth of its territory. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year, Russian military deployments in Abkhazia and South Ossetia have fallen off substantially. The Georgian public is strongly supportive of Ukraine. Its government, however, has opted out of Western sanctions and maintained ties with Moscow.
To talk about all of this, we are delighted to welcome Joshua Kuchera and Alessia Bertagnan. Joshua is a journalist based in Tbilisi who has covered the Caucasus region for several years and has, of course, published on the region, uh, including in The Economist, Foreign Policy, and The Intercept, among others. He regularly contributes to the independent news site Eurasianet. Alessia is Crisis Group's senior analyst for the South Caucasus. Tbilisi is her hometown. Uh, it's where she's based to cover the region. She was in South Ossetia during the 2008 war, reporting for the New York Times. Since then, she has been often traveling to this and another breakaway region, Abhazia. She is a returning guest. She's spoken with us in the past, uh, mostly about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Welcome to War and Peace, Joshua, and welcome back to War and Peace, Alessia. Thanks for having me. It's very nice to be back to you. So, Joshua, um, the protests at the beginning of March, they were a reaction to this proposed bill that was going to classify organizations, media outlets, basically anybody who was getting 20% or more funding from abroad as foreign, foreign agents. Um, why, why did people get so mad about that? Uh, are they not foreign agents if they're getting foreign funding? <laughs> well, I, that's a, a complicated question, but I think people, uh, I, for one, I think the content of the bill, from what I understand, would not have been that onerous from people that I know in the grant giving world. You know, it, it basically only required registration. Um, however, the, the reason that people were worried, I think, was the signaling that this showed. For one, uh, as you said, it, it, has these obvious uh, comparisons with the uh, foreign agent laws that Russia adopted uh, starting about 10 years ago. And those laws also only started with a uh, registration requirement. And then over the years, they became more and more uh, amended to become more and more uh, restrictive to the point where now basically you can't operate in Russia at all if your organization got you know a $5 donation from somewhere. Uh, and so people were afraid of this happening, uh, as well in, in Georgia. And given that the, the ruling party, the Georgian Dream Party has this extremely antagonistic relationship with this handful of, uh, Western funded NGOs that seem to be the target of this whole, uh, exercise, uh, it was not that hard to believe that, uh, Georgia could conceivably go down that same path. Uh, the second thing I think that was even more ominous is that, uh, Georgia is in the middle of this EU candidacy process. And the fact that, you know, they're being very closely scrutinized by Brussels and by European Union member states. Um, they applied last year. The EU said, we will make you a candidate if you make these reforms in 12 different areas. Uh, they have until this fall to kind of uh, make improvements in those 12 areas. And this whole time, they're, they're supposed to be doing all these things that the EU wants. And yet, sort of inexplicably, out of nowhere, basically, the ruling party decided that this foreign agent law was their top priority. Um, why they did that is still really, to me, very much a mystery. Um, but it really, I think, alarmed people to think that, okay, if why, why, why this of all things to do, be doing now of all times. So I think that's what really freaked people out. And I think people, you know, on, in the protests, uh, it was very much, um, presented. The, the whole thing was presented as a Russian bill. People were chanting Russians, Russians at the, the MPs who were inside parliament. Um, 
And there was a lot of European imagery and people felt like this was their kind of European aspiration being taken away from them. So I think that was what people really, uh, really responded to was this sense that the government was, was doing something very self-sabotaging for reasons that were not clear. And I think that's what, um, people, people really felt, felt like this was a critical moment. And that's what people, what brought people out into the streets. Alyssa, anything to add? Is it, do you agree? Um, I very much agree with what uh, Joshua has just said. I would probably only add that the Georgia dream is very much about uh, its own desire to stay in power. And uh, it has tapped into this uh, era, new era, when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine uh, with its own domestic problems, uh, with uh, profound political polarization, and uh, already many Western uh, allies and friends being skeptical uh, about uh, the commitment, I would say, of the Georgian leadership to take this uh, very difficult but still very important uh, path of uh, reforms domestically. So uh, whenever there was uh, someone who uh, raised uh, a question about uh, about Georgia's prospects to get closer with the EU, uh, that uh, would provoke uh, protest and then we would have um, people... um, um, getting angry, I would say. And in this very case uh, of recent protests, what I would probably also have to add is that these were the largest uh, rallies that we have had in over a decade uh, since the Georgian Dream, the current ruling party, came to power. Um, the anger that I could uh, feel uh, in Belize, it was so widespread. People would discuss uh, the protest, and especially the dispersed by the right police. They would discuss it at shops. Uh, you would hear people discussing it at, on buses when they are walking their dogs or waiting for their kids at the school. And then people would be really very angry about uh, what uh, what is happening and also skeptical about where the leadership is taking the country. So in a way, uh, that was the, the right decision uh, by the Georgian dream um, that they, they decided just to drop the plan altogether. Uh, and, uh, and probably I hope that they also understood that if they continue kind of testing uh, with very troubled waters, they might lose the power. Could we talk a bit about the protests themselves? I mean, you were both in... Tbilisi, and I know Joshua, I think you were out on the streets, um, during the protests. What, what was the atmosphere like? How, how did they go down? How would you evaluate, um, the government and the police response and the protesters' response to that? Uh, well, I would say, you know, I went down there. I, I live not very far away from the site of the protest and where, the, where every protest in Tbilisi happens. And so I, you know, when something happens, I try to go down just to check it out. And I, they're always a little bit the same. Um, it's kind of the same type of person who goes to these anti-Georgian dream protests. It's a very kind of elite crowd, um, that I think, and I'm always a bit skeptical of the, um, the depth of the support that, that, that kind of, um, group can get. Uh, and I think it limits the the size of any popular protest against uh, Georgian Dream. 
This one was a bit different. I could tell uh, early on that it was a it was a more diverse crowd. It was still, I would say, dominated by these kind of uh, elite people, but it was more more regular people, I would say, than it's normally at these things. Um, I also was surprised as soon as I got there, it was really quite intense. I mean, I, I got there um, before it got violent, but you could already tell that there were scuffles with the police, um, you know, early, quite a, quite a while before it got violent. To me, honestly, the police showed a lot of restraint. Like I was amazed, um, you know, as an American and having moved here from Turkey, like, Neither the American police nor the Turkish police would have put up with 5% of what the Chinese police put up with. Um, I mean, before everything started, there were people were like stealing their shields and their helmets or pulling police out of the ranks. And, um, it was quite intense. Um, but, um, I'm not an expert on police kind of, uh, practice. I will say that the, 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 the emotions were very high. Uh, and more than I have seen, I think, in previous protests. Um, and so, yeah, so then the, eventually, as, as you probably saw all on TV, they brought out water cannons and tear gas. Um, I, then I wasn't there the second night or I, I was there just for a short time and I didn't, wasn't there when again, um, it got, um, broken up uh, again quite violently. Um, and then, then they, they backed down. Um, my guess why they backed down is because of this breadth, this greater breadth of popular support. And it was something you didn't even, didn't only see in the protest, but like Olesia said, I think it, it, um, touched a kind of wider, um, a wider kind of a swath of society. I mean, it was amazing to me that, um, these like soccer stars, um, Quincha, uh, Quadascalia, you know, he stays out of politics and he wrote a Facebook post complaining about this law. Uh, the other, uh, the main Georgian soccer teams, uh, came out against his basketball players. I mean, these are people that don't normally get involved with politics. And I think that maybe, um, the, that kind of, uh, spooked, uh, the, the ruling party. Alessia, were you surprised by the, um, extent and the breadth of the protesters? Well, I should probably say that I covered uh, protest in the past when I was a journalist. Uh, so I saw many protests uh, led by opposition, for example, including by the Georgian Dream itself, <laughs> that at that time was uh, uh, trying to, to come to power. And uh, probably the main difference uh, between uh, what was happening uh, in March uh, and also what was happening years ago is that this very protest was very much originated. I mean, it, it came from the public. I was at the meeting with some NGOs uh, near the place where the protest uh, started taking place. So when I finished, I just uh, got into the street and I found lots of people. It was not like someone made a call or it was not like a politicians or even civil society, uh, they knew that it was coming. It's just people heard that the parliament suddenly decided to adopt this law that uh, probably will uh, end the whole story of integration uh, towards the European Union. And, and they just decided to go and to protest. So um, it's absolutely of no surprise that uh, there were problems. Um, 
including the, the police, to me personally, um, I think it's mainly because the protest, again, it came kind of, you know, <laughs> Out of nowhere, uh, no one even organized it. Uh, I had to watch it uh, when it became violent. I was already at home and I watched it on TV. And, you know, it was obvious that uh, the people uh, who gathered there, they were not there to listen to the leaders even who were standing at the microphone. So um, with our kind of the situation that uh, you face, but... I think the anger that uh, it uh, provoked, I mean, that took people to the streets and also made so many people complain uh, who were not necessarily at the protest. I think the main thing, it's something uh, that uh, I would describe as a very Tbilisi kind of <laughs> uh, thing, you know, uh, very, very much what you see in Tbilisi is uh, you can uh, have people waiting for a very long time when they are angry or when they spot that the government is doing something wrong. And But at some point, you know, something happens and you can see like lots of people and then they start uh, campaigning for a change. And that's why I, I think that um, I don't think that with protest, uh, with with kind of, uh, you know, U-turn that the government uh, made, uh, it's the end of the story. It's uh, it's only the beginning of what we are to see. And I, I also think that people in, in the leadership, they understand that as well. So they will have to respond to it uh, somehow. So, Lisa, you said uh, that... The issue here is Georgian Dream wanting to stay in power. They've been in power for over a decade now. Um, they, they've won three consecutive elections. So is this going to ruin them politically? I mean, it seems very odd to their policies really since the full-scale Russian invasion don't look like policies of a party that's trying to stay in power. Um, I know Joshua said that he couldn't really explain this. Do you have any hypotheses on what's going on? I think uh, the party has been in crisis for some time and they understand it. Every next election was more difficult than the previous one for them to win. Uh, every time you could see them um, the investing many more efforts, also making many more investments like financially, also making some deals with kind of people, you know, in the regions. You can see them activating administrative resources as well. So I think the guys, they understand that they have a problem. Um, they also understand that people are tired of them uh, or getting tired. So um, if they want to introduce a change, then that means that you have to make your apparatus work. And this is something that I'm afraid not very easy for them to do. Or you have to give space to those who are in the position and um, the people in the position they have been uh, so poorly handled. I mean, they they have been losing all the elections and the government has done so much to discredit them that it's really very difficult to see how these guys can start cooperating. It will not uh, happen uh, very easily. So, and I don't think that what we have been seeing uh, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine is different from what <laughs> to what the Georgian dream was doing before that, in fact. Um, maybe we were expecting them <laughs> to do something uh, in a different way, which did not happen. Um, in fact, uh, what the guys have been doing is, for example, they invited thousands of the Russian citizens who are, who were running and who are still running from the war. And, uh, it happened, 
um, with lots of protest of uh, people in Belize, but they did it because they wanted to somehow revive this post-pandemic economy in, in Georgia, because they understand that if people have money, then there will be less incentive, you know, for example, to go and protest, and maybe they will get voters for, for that. But they've also been stopping Russians uh, who are more op- more publicly oppositionary at the border and not letting them in. So it's uh, it's not entirely clear that their policy is um, is consistent. Consistent is one, yeah. Or yes, it's, it's it's really hard to explain. On the one hand, they're letting people in who are fleeing Russia. On the other hand, not the ones that the Russians really dislike. <laughs> Like, what's that about? Well, there is some consistency there. <laughs> they would invite thousands of Russians who will bring money. They would not be inviting those who are bringing problems or can provoke more problems uh, with the Russian leadership. And clearly, people in Kremlin would prefer with guys not to, I don't know, to organize some groups or uh, start broadcasting from Georgia or doing all these things. So the Georgian leadership, they understand very well with things. In fact, they are kind of, you know, uh, some people call it like a sitting on two, two chairs. I don't think that they are sitting on two chairs. They are sitting on their own chair and the chair, they put it somewhere in a distant corner and would prefer to profit from anything possible, you know, around them so that no one touches them, no one kind of creates problems to them. And if they can profit, that's perfect, that's fine. But they definitely don't want to be particip- to be one of these participants in this uh, ongoing fight between the West and Russia because they believe that it will uh, come at a great cost and that can create even more problems to the government that is so much in a crisis already. Joshua, did you want to come in? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think there is a domestic political logic to to the way that they're behaving. I think that they, one of their uh, main kind of uh, talking points of why they say they're better than the previous government is that they keep Georgia out of the war. Uh, and so I think that they, a lot of what they're doing is, um, A, it's based on fear uh, that Russia now is extremely unpredictable and Georgia is very vulnerable and they don't really know uh, what uh, Russia could be thinking vis-a-vis Georgia. Um, a lot is, uh, you know, this, the situation's a lot more precarious even than it was uh, already. What about their policies towards Abkhazia and South Ossetia? Are we, I mean, this is something the Rus- Russian troops that were there, uh, well, it's a much smaller, uh, much smaller group of Russian troops that are there. You know, if you're looking at it from the outside, you might think, oh, what an exciting opportunity for the Georgians to do some outreach. If you're in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, perhaps you also are thinking maybe the Russians aren't as reliable as partners if they've withdrawn all, a large number of their forces. Um, I mean, Joshua, were you expecting this policy towards Georgian Dream in which really they've, as near as I can tell, done very little vis-a-vis Abkhazia or South Ossetia? Well, I think they're really trying to stay out of trouble of any sort. And I think causing, um, you know, 
they're, you know, in fact, that one of their, their big, um, uh, kind of talking points now is that they're complaining that, uh, they're explicitly blaming the Ukrainian government for trying to drag them into the war. And they're kind of indirectly, uh, blaming the West for trying to drag them into the war. Uh, and so this is one thing I think that their, their domestic political messaging about we're keeping Georgia out of a war, uh, is very much in play here. And that, um, the, the second front as it's kind of referred to here, um, is really not an option. And I will say that I think even the, the opposition has not pushed that as a, as a kind of viable thing that, that this is something that Georgia should be thinking about. Okay. Wow. I was, uh, I was thinking about just talking to them, which Alessa is something you've recommended for a long time. So were you surprised that they made no effort in that direction? Um, you know, I think uh, the longer it goes, the more uh, we see some Georgian officials who don't say it in public, uh, but they want to play big. So they would prefer to see some major changes in Russia, uh, kind of getting formalized. And only after that, they will kind of take the next steps. Um, it's a very ambitious plan. Um, Georgians used to have it before as well, and it never worked, uh, for the reason that Joshua mentioned as well. Uh, there are some problems and there are the people in South Ossetia and Abkhazia who believe that they, uh, have, I mean, they have their own affairs and they are not ready to integrate. And, uh, um, so it's kind of, you know, if, uh, with this, uh, what, uh, the Georgian leadership, starts thinking about, uh, you know, that we need to wait and see, uh, and then, then potentially we will make use of with new opportunities, then I'm afraid that they are n- not going to be ready, even for these new opportunities, because they will not have policies in place, they will not have contacts, they will not have uh, any kind of projects, you know, they will not even have the backing of their Western partners, uh, potentially. Um, the right thing that they have been doing and... Uh, we at crisis group supported it, uh, is that they have been working very hard to keep with relative stability along the lines uh, of separation with two breakaway regions. Um, in fact, last year was one of the best uh, since the 2008 war. And this is mainly because Russia is now absolutely not interested to have another area where they have to engage diplomatically or where they have to invest militarily. So, in fact, the Russians have been doing a lot uh, to cooperate with uh, Georgians uh, in order to prevent incidents or resolve them. And, uh, um, but, you know, what's really very important is also not to take uh, such cooperation for granted. Uh, the days when we saw with protests here uh, in Belize, uh, at the same time, we also started uh, hearing from the Russian officials and also especially de facto Abkhaz officials who have their own domestic pro- problems, they started speaking about this upcoming war with Georgia. And now we see military exercises taking place in Abkhazia. So, um, you know, I think uh, in a way, oh, and by the way, some people started talking about Maidan and that it will be a repetition of the Ukrainian scenario and that uh, you will see uh, what will happen. I mean, we can stay absolutely only at the level of words, but at the same time, I'm afraid... Uh, there can be some people who might believe in what's happening and any small incident can be, 
turn into something that will provoke tensions, and then always 15 years of relative stability, uh, they will be wasted for any potential policies or any any plans uh, that are that hopefully will be coming still, you know. So, I mean, what really do you think are the, the risks of a resumed conflict? I mean, there you were saying that a misstep could potentially spark um, a return to, to conflict. Is it, are you, are we, are you very concerned? Are there things that Tbilisi and its partners should be doing to mitigate those risks? Tbilisi believes that they have been already doing that, in fact, uh, they believe that with their kind of, with strange policy that they have on Russia that provokes so many kind of questions, you know, they call it strategic patience, that they have been kind of keeping Russia a bit away, uh, and they would cooperate uh, with them on, uh, on, on the things that, uh, sustain with relative stability along the lines of separation. Um, one should understand that Georgia is much smaller than Ukraine. So any potential conflict or any fighting, uh, it will take much less for Russia to roll in its tanks and to do uh, a serious damage to Georgia. We saw it in 2008. It took them just five days. Uh, I still can remember them uh, uh, with tanks uh, on the main highways in Georgia. One would say that we have like a Russia distracted, Russia not interested, but at the same time, Georgia is so vulnerable and things can go uh, in, in the wrong direction so easily that these guys uh, in the Georgian offices, they kind of look at this and they say, mm, no, we are not going to provoke with, uh, with, with people. You know, we would prefer again to continue with cooperation. We would prefer to keep with contacts and maybe maybe that can help us uh, live through with difficult period, you know. So would this all look different if Georgia had been offered EU candidacy along with Moldova and Ukraine? Or is that would that have been ridiculous given all of the backtracking? Would it have just been rewarding bad behavior? And, you know, the, was the EU right to set conditions for Georgia? And how does this go forward now? I do think they've they've kind of backed themselves into a corner because now at this point, uh, and I think everyone recognizes this, if they deny Georgia in the fall, it's going to be a huge blow to Georgia's relations to the West, and everybody knows that. And so I think that um, the risk of a no in the fall is is very high. And so yeah, I do think that. Um, I, but I don't, that's, that's an interesting hypothetical and I haven't thought about it. What would have happened last June if they'd just given Georgia the candidacy like they did Moldova and Ukraine? Um, how things would be different now? I mean, it's also theoretical anyway, a candidate status. I mean, Turkey's a candidate. Uh, you know, it's going to take 10 years for Moldova and Ukraine to become members. So like what it almost, it's almost symbolic anyway. Um, so I don't really know what the EU would lose by, um, giving them this, uh, candidate status, uh, and they would definitely lose a lot, uh, by denying it. I don't know. Ask the folks in the Western Balkans. It's very political. And I guess if you do make the argument that we set conditions, you didn't meet them, but we're going to give you candidacy anyway, you're not, you're, you're not really sending a signal that, uh, your words and your conditions are meaningful. 
you're treating this as purely a political symbolic move. And I don't know that the EU wants to do that. Right. And that's what they did in, in, uh, in June that they understood that Georgia was, you know, in kind of absolute terms ahead of, uh, Moldova and Ukraine in terms of checking all the boxes that they needed to, to get in, but they were going in the wrong direction. Whereas, uh, from the EU's perspective, Ukraine and Moldova were going in the right direction. So they didn't want to, uh, reward that bad behavior. That was their thinking in June, but now they were kind of, uh, in this bind. Uh, and it's difficult to see how, how they get out of it. Is there any chance that, um, that Georgia can meet those conditions within the time frame? I mean, this is very, it's very subjective, I think, in terms of what, you know, when I talk to, you know, uh, Western diplomats about, okay, how do you think Georgia's doing? You know, I, I, I get the sense that sometimes the, the, the perception, it, it's all about perception and it's all about, we want to see them trying to do this. Uh, and then that becomes very subjective. Uh, okay. To what extent are they trying? Georgian Dream says, okay, we have, uh, legislation passed for all these 12 things. We're doing our things. And then, uh, everyone has a sort of different interpretation about whether they could have done more or whether, um, it's enough or, and, and I don't think anybody, you know, these, these, uh, these 12 steps, if you read them, you know, they're, they're really quite vague. You know, they have to make progress in this area. And how do you judge whether they've made progress, sufficient progress in this area? And so it's, it's all quite subjective. And then on top of that, it's all going to be, uh, the decisions are going to be made by the EU member states themselves, all of which have their own interests and agendas and perspectives. And so, um, I think it's just impossible to say what is enough in this case. So we, um, I was going to say, so we, we, I mean, we're in a, a bit of a mess then, Alessia, do you think? Is there a, is there a way out? I have been meeting a number of diplomats, uh, in, in recent, uh, weeks. And, uh, what I can tell you is that, uh, they are super angry. They are angry to the point that when they start discussing uh, even the need to stop uh, providing financial aid to the Georgian leadership. Um, it's very difficult for me to see how uh, it can go away um, very easily. Um, so the anger that is in, in, in the population that we described before, uh, it definitely found this reflection also um among those who are reporting to their capitals and they also hear back from their capitals. Um, and I'm talking about the Western diplomats. Um, it will be very difficult decision for the European Union. Um, they will have to find a way to work around it. Uh, they will probably have to come up with some sophisticated decision because on the, on the one hand, it's a Georgia story and also with consistent failure by the current Georgian leadership to meet, uh, different requirements uh, coming or the lists, you know, coming from the European Union. But on the other hand, it's also a story about Russia. And the main question, uh, uh, that, that is in the air is how to say no, uh, without green lighting, uh, without providing green light to Russia. Um, so that Moscow does not interpret it as if the European Union is basically leaving the region. This is going to be a really difficult uh, task for Brussels, uh, also because it's not only uh, about Georgia and Russia, it's also about the neighborhood. 
Um, since the Russian invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, uh, we have seen quite a lot of countries uh, in the neighborhood that started kind of looking for alternatives. And uh, if the European Union now turns its back on Georgia, that will be not an attractive uh, example for uh, those in Central Asia and others in the South Caucasus. So um, how to make it work? It's, uh, it's going to be a very difficult issue. Um, so on on that difficult catch-22, I think we are going to have to close for today because we're out of time. So Josh and Alyssa, this was a really, uh, really rich conversation. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, to read more from Joshua and Alessia, you can follow them on Twitter, respectively, at Joshua Kuchera, just uh, all one word. Alessia is at Alessia underscore V-A-R-T. Uh, you can also find more of Joshua's work on Georgia and the Caucasus in Eurasianet and several other publications. And Alessia's work, of course, is on our own website. Uh, to read more of Crisis Group's work, and particularly Alessia's work on Georgia and the South Caucasus, check out our website at www.crisisgroup.org. And we'd like to also encourage you to follow Crisis Group and us on your favorite social media platform. On Twitter, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group, Alyssa is at Alyssa Jobson, and I'm at Olya Olaker, which I also am on Mastodon. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vigursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. Um, but our biggest thanks, as always, go out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace. That's if you haven't done already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We're looking forward to another interesting conversation in about two weeks. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye until next time.